Well, if you can believe it, next one week from now, December 1st, I think sometimes the, the weekend after Thanksgiving maybe lands like right at the end of November. Maybe I'm wrong with that. But this year it just felt like it kind of snuck up. December 1st all of a sudden um, is here. And so this Thanksgiving plus Christmas um, is a season where we have thanks. You know, Thanksgiving, we're thinking about that. And usually Christmas <coughs> is we think about joy and we have joy to the world and we have these songs with joy in them and, and peace. And so the holidays come and we're supposed to be in this feeling and the season of thanks and joy. Uh, but the holidays can also be a challenging and difficult time. Uh, sometimes we're sad about who isn't around the table that used to be around the table, maybe be, um, because of loved ones that have been lost to death or, or are strange or whatever <coughs> it is. And, and we also go into these times, going to family gatherings, and maybe we see people that it's like, man, I've had a tough relationship with you. Or maybe we see uh, people that have hurt us a lot or that we don't get along with super well. Maybe it's not that people have hurt you. Maybe it's just kind of awkward. You're like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Thanksgiving and make small talk with all my aunts and uncles and cousins that I rarely see or something like that. Um, but it can be, so it's supposed to be this thanks and joy full time, but it can often um, uh, not feel that way at times during it. And we can get so caught up in all the, um, okay, we got to prepare the meals, we got to drive, we got to have, you know, prepare the house. Oh, now we have to buy all the presents. So it's December already, now we're scurrying all over. And then by the time it's over, it's like, oh, thank goodness Christmas is over. And it's like, what? You know, it's supposed to be this time of joy. You know, thank goodness Thanksgiving is over. It's like we're thanking um, God that the, the time has passed and now we're through it all. And there's often this, we think about, I want to key in on the word joy. And often people make a distinction between happiness and joy and whether you buy into there, whether there's a difference or not. Um, but anyway, the, the common way it's talked about is happiness is determined by circumstances and joy can be a constant. And so I made up this little rhyme if you like rhymes or something. Uh, what happens determines happiness, but to rejoice is a choice. What happens determines happiness, but to rejoice is a choice. And the idea is that happiness kind of like goes up and down depending on our circumstances. Like, okay, I was happy today because things went as I wanted. Or I was not happy today because, you know, it wasn't a good day because things didn't go as I want. But uh, joy to rejoice is a choice that we can make. That ha It's not like happiness going up and down with whatever happens to us. But joy can be this constant. And maybe happiness can be there along with it. But joy is kind of this more solid thing. Um, that can uh, that lasts through whatever is happening, and for me, it's easy for me to feel happy and thankful when things are going my way. You know, when the day went as I planned, or day went as I expected, day went as I wanted it, um, then it's easy to feel happy. Like, okay, yeah, things went went about, and you can you know get that picture. You know, there's all these pictures online where like commercials where it's like the perfect family Thanksgiving meal and nobody's fighting. It's just like. It's like, oh, it's like all this beaming happiness, and it's like that whole meal went exactly as they planned it and wanted it. Uh, but usually it's a little more uh, different than that, perhaps, for us, and our days are different from that. And as we think about uh, our lives, um, it's a guarantee that the past and the present and the future, life hasn't been what you wanted it to be, uh, life isn't what you want it to be, and life uh, probably isn't going to be what you want it to be. You know, things don't happen as we exactly want them or as exactly as we expect or exactly as we plan. When bad things happen to us or people we love, we didn't plan that, we didn't want it, we didn't expect that. Um, when disaster or tragedy or affliction or, or hardship or suffering hits us, that's not what we planned, that's not what we wanted, that's not what we expected. And we can kind of get caught in this thing 
where we're going from one day to the next or one week to the next or one interact, you know, interaction to interaction or one month to the next, um, just hoping that one of them was going to make us happy. And but we can count on this, that life is not going to be as we want, as we plan, as we expect. And so how do we get something deeper um, than, than our emotions going up and down with our circumstances? And as we finish the week, this week with the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, um, becoming a blessing. Uh, we see that this family has gone um, through a journey of how are they going to be a blessing to all nations. They're just in this rough spot when we first meet them. As we close this series, my desire and prayer for today is that you would be able to choose joy in whatever circumstances you find yourself <coughs> in now and in the future. And even when you look at the past, to be able to choose joy for what has happened in your past. And when we first started this series in Genesis 37, I talked about how Joseph's life is not what he wanted, not what he expected, and not what he planned. He did not plan or want his brothers to hate him, to be jealous of him, to sell him uh, to slave traders, and to send him off to Egypt and then hope and cover up his death. He didn't want that or plan that or expect that. He didn't want to be uh, falsely accused of sexual misconduct and thrown in prison. And he didn't want to be forgotten by the chief baker when he gets uh, says, please remember me when you get restored to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. And he didn't want to be forgotten um, but he also probably did not plan to become the second in charge in Egypt. He probably didn't plan. You know, he had those dreams in chapter 37 about his brothers bowing down to him and even then his dad and uh, his parents bowing down to him. He didn't probably know how that was going to turn out. And so I don't think he planned or expected to have them, his whole family, to be dependent on him to save him and to feed, to feed them through this famine so that they would not starve to death. And so he didn't plan or want or expect all those bad things that happen, but didn't plan or expect it to turn out how it did either. And our big idea for today is very simple. This might be like a record in shortness for big ideas. Um, God uses bad for good. It's our big idea. God uses bad for good. This is going to be coming out of uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. God uses bad for good. And I intentionally use the word bad because um, the word in Hebrew that's translated evil isn't always like, when we hear evil, we think like, okay, that's like, well, that's like Hitler level of like something that is just the worst that it could possibly be. The word has a little more range than that. It can not necessarily always be like the most evil thing. It can just be a bad thing. And we want to, as we go through it this evening, um, I want us to be considering, like, you know, what are the things that God brings in our life? It may not be bad, it may not be evil, but things that challenge us or that make us uncomfortable or that push us, and then genuine, genuine suffering and affliction that come into our lives. And uh, hopefully by the end we can, uh, whatever it is, we can feel joy about that and choose joy for that. This chapter, uh, we start off with the death and burial of Jacob. The, the patriarch of the family dies, and there's this grand funeral procession. Uh, and I was just counting up in our gospel fluency group on Thursday. We were we were looking over all these numbers um, of what happens, uh, of how much effort and preparation, and how expensive it would have been, and how many people were involved in this funeral procession. Now uh, there's 40 days of embalming for Jacob. Um, there's 70 days of weeping, which includes the Egyptians. And then the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and the elders of the land of Egypt go with him up to Canaan um, from Egypt up to Canaan. You know, Joe, uh, uh, Pharaoh sends his staff up to help him uh, 
with this funeral procession, and he sends chariots and horsemen, so there's this protection. It's like, man, it almost looks like Egypt is going to war or something. Maybe, maybe it was a small army, but it looks impressive. And then there's seven days of mourning once they get up close to Canaan at the threshing floor of Ated. And if you don't know what a threshing floor is, that was like how they separated um, wheat. There's like the kernels of wheat, and there would be like an animal or something that would crush, go around in a circle and like crush the wheat, and then they'd have a fork and throw it up in the chaff. You always hear about things getting blown away, the little uh, like kernels that were on the wheat would blow away in the wind, and then what would fall would be the grain. So there's this little flat spot, a threshing floor, where they hang out and camp out, and they mourn for Jacob. And we uh, were, we did this Google Maps thing, um, where we did like you know plot our journey from uh, Egypt up to you know someplace in Canaan, and it was like two weeks of walking or something like that. But then you figure they're bringing all these people, so two to four weeks up. You know, two to four weeks back. So it's like, man, how much time did Pharaoh allow all these people to leave his land? You know, who, I mean, who knows what would have happened? Like, he let them all leave and do take part in this funeral. And what this shows us, uh, this isn't the main part of what we're talking about, so we're going over it quickly. But all this, this weeping and this, um, this time to grieve and mourn and lament the death of Jacob. This isn't even Joseph, who's been such a key and pivotal person in Egypt um, of helping them survive this famine. Um, and perhaps while Jacob spent his time there, he's been there 17 years, perhaps he had an influence on Pharaoh too. Pharaoh, when they meet face to face, he's pretty impressed with them. Like, well, how old are you, man? Uh, and he tells them, and then he tells them how bad his life has been. But uh, there's this, maybe Jacob had some influence too. But just it could just be honoring Joseph of like, this guy's done so much for our nation. And we're going to make sure to honor his dad. And as I was thinking about this, it's a testimony of Joseph's impact on Egypt. And so we can think about, like, what's the impact of our life on those around us? Um, whether they share our beliefs or not, what's the impact of our life on those around us? And Joseph, the Egyptians, they have a whole different set of gods than him. And yet, he wasn't like, well, let them, let them die. Um, they don't worship the God of Israel, they can just die. But no, he uses... Um, his uh, connection with God um, to be able to help them survive this famine. And he blesses them and takes care of them and sets his plan out for them. And so he's using the gifts God has given them to bless people who don't share his beliefs. And so what's the impact of your life on those around you, whether they share your beliefs or not? What, is, what are you known for by the people around you? And this isn't like, you know, a direct thing that's taken out of this passage, but um, as we, as I said, December's going to all of a sudden be on us, and one of the big things that we like to do as a church, um, we've done it the last past three years, is try to do, uh, reach out to people who may not have a Christmas Eve, place to celebrate Christmas Eve. Um, so I want to encourage you to think about, you know, as you're thinking about what's the impact of my life on the people around me, what do they know me for? Um, and as you think about those people, um, be praying about, God, who would you like me to invite to our Christmas Eve service? It's just a, such an easy time um, to invite people in um, to be able to experience worshiping God. Maybe they were like, man, I went to Christmas Eve services 20 years ago, but I haven't been back to church since. Or maybe it's like uh, something they're always curious about or never even heard about. It's like, what, a Christmas Eve service? What's that about? It's just such an easy thing to say, hey, are you going to be 
celebrating in any way for Christmas Eve, and maybe they say, no, not really, or maybe they have plans, but you can say, well, I, you know, our church does this cool Christmas Eve service, there's like candles and Christmas carols, and I'd love to celebrate with you uh, if you want to come, and you know, we're going to have little invite cards that you can give to people, um, or you can just write something down, and you can say, like, here, here's an invite, love for you to come, if not, you know, that's okay. Uh, and just like, you know, no pressure, but it's just an easy time um, to invite people in, and we become people that are known for, man, we take... Jesus' birth really seriously um, because this was a time that his good news of great joy as we're told in, in Luke's gospel that uh, we have this joy we're known for this joy around Christmas time and we're inviting other people into that and that can be something that um, is our impact on other people's lives of people of joy and excitement around Christmas and chapter after the funeral procession and they all get settled back in uh, starting in verse 15 the brothers are a little nervous. Uh, they recognize, okay, our dad's dead. Uh, maybe Joseph was being nice to us because he wanted dad down here. Maybe he was honoring dad because he didn't want uh, didn't want to hurt him by doing something evil to us, you know, paying us back for the thing we did. And so they say in verse 15, well, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. It's hard to know, did, did Jacob actually give that command? Or are they kind of uh, just saying, like, Well, we know this is kind of what Dad would want. You should do it. Uh, are they lying? Are they lying? Um, I, I tend to think that they, uh, there probably was some sort of conversation around the dinner table or something about, uh, like, hey, like this... This, you guys got to make this right. Um, don't you, know, you need to ask for forgiveness for that thing you did long ago. And so I don't think they're lying, but they could be. Um, but he sa- they say that they send these messengers and they say to Joseph, "Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you." And so they're fully owning it. Like we transgressed against you. We and transgression is like this betrayal of trust and faithfulness. Like we were, we were supposed to have this relationship. It was complete trustworthiness filled with faithfulness that we were had your back and you had our back and we transgressed that. We broke that relationship how it's supposed to be. And they say their sin and this evil they did to you, they did to him and they're recognizing we did evil. We did something that was horrible. This was, you know, injured you and, and hurt you. And they ask for forgiveness for the transgression that they did. And then Joseph, when he hears this, verse 17 at the end, he wept when they spoke to him. And then in verse 18, his brothers come, so there's the messengers, but now his brothers come, maybe they heard Joseph's response, like, okay, we should go in there. Like, maybe, well, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. These messengers, it doesn't turn out right, we can leave. I don't know what they thought would happen. But verse 18, he says, his brothers also came and fell down before him. He said, behold, we are your servants. Now, remember the dream. What was the dream that Joseph had this dream that his brothers were going to fall down before him and then he tells this dream to him they're like, really? Like, is that going to happen? They hated them for it. And they've already fallen down before him three times uh, asking for food. They've been at, <coughs> coming before him. This, there's this ruler of this land but they didn't know they were falling before Joseph. They thought they were falling before this ruler in Egypt. We need food. Please give it to us. Or sometimes they were saying like, we, you know, we, the money was in our sacks you know, we're guilty, you know, do this to us. 
Um, but now they know who they're falling in front of. They know they're actually falling in front of Joseph. And so Joseph's dream came true. He's seeing his brothers for the fourth time um, falling down before him. And now they're doing it to ask for forgiveness and saying, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And Joseph's response, he says, do not fear twice, because they're, you know, they're afraid. They're like, maybe Joseph's going to pay us back now. And I, if you want to have a definition of forgiveness, I think I gave one several weeks back when Joseph first revealed himself to them. Um, but they, what they say up in verse 15, Joseph is going to pay us back. And one way to define forgiveness is surrendering the right uh, to demand repayment for the wrong done to you. And when we forgive, we're, I'm surrendering the right to get to collect on this debt. You've hurt me, you've wronged me, and now you owe me morally, but I'm surrendering my right to demand repayment for that wrong. And so Joseph's like, who knows, we saw that he had already uh, released this to God, that this was something, you know, I'm not going to pay you guys back, I'm going to take care of you. And now they're finally owning up to it. It's been so long, 17 years since he revealed himself, and now they're owning up to it. Uh, and he's saying, like, well, I'm not in the place of God. I'm, you know, I'm not going to repay you for this. They want forgiveness, and they get it. But there's uh, two key parts to what Joseph says. He says, I'm, am I in the place of God? So he's saying, like, I'm not the one who makes the decisions about what should happen to you for the wrong you've done. Um, I have it on me to forgive you um, and to treat you uh, in a loving, kind way, but I'm not going to be the one that decides. God's going to be the one that decides. And then he sees, he tells us how he saw that God used their evil to actually put him in a position to save them, that they did evil to him, and, not, and God, they intended that for evil, for bad, for harm to him, but then God intended it for good. And he says, God meant it for good, to bring it about, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so their plan was get rid of Joseph. God's plan was, I'm going to keep this family alive through Joseph, even though it's the evil actions that get him there. And then he says again, So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And so he's saying, like, I'm not in the place of God. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good, so that I could preserve your lives. So don't be afraid, because I see that God's plan in this is that I would be here to save my own family and to save all these people in Egypt, and so do not be afraid. And it says, thus he comforted them, spoke kindly to them. So he leaves the judgment in God's, the hands of God. He sees God's good purposes, and he uses his position to bless rather than destroy. Now as you think about <clears throat> Jesus' life, it's amazing as we've gone through this just to see how many parallels there are um, to Jesus' own life of what um, he was sent to do and the things that happened to them. And so just a brief, brief recap. Joseph, he shared a dream with them about how they would bow down before him. You could say he shared a message from God uh, with them that they were going to bow before him one day and they hated him, rejected him, and sent him to his death. And Jesus also shared a message from God. He shared a message that the kingdom of God has come and I'm the king, and so you guys are going to bow down before me. I'm the 
king that God had sent for all of you to bow down before me. And he was hated and he was rejected and sent to his death because of it. But in both cases, God uses the evil, the bad, for good. The act of evil done by the humans was turned into an act of good by God. And the evil done by the brothers to get rid of Joseph is becomes what saves them. They did this evil act to get rid of Joseph, but then the evil act is actually what comes about to save them. And the evil done to get rid of Jesus becomes what saves us. This evil that he was rejected and hated and despised and then sent to his death on a cross, now that evil act becomes the very act by which we are saved from our evil, sinful, selfish actions. And the brothers are not repaid for the evil they, did, they committed, but they're given the opposite. They're given salvation. They're given forgiveness, comfort, and, and provision. And they should be getting the opposite of all that. That's the opposite of what they deserve. So they get the, the very opposite of uh, what their actions should be giving them. And God used the sinful, selfish, evil actions of this family to save this family. And he's working uh, through them despite their actions. And as we stand before God... We should be repaid for the evil that we have done. And yet we're given the opposite. We're given salvation. We're forgiven. We're comforted. We're provided for. We're given an inheritance. And this should be something that creates joy in us. And we see in the book of Genesis, uh, this, I mean, the world just gets messed up. From Genesis 3, God, 1 and 2, God creates a good world that he wants humans to reign and rule over on his behalf. We're his representatives. Genesis 3 all gets messed up all distorted, corrupted by sin. God sees that there's evil intentions of man's heart everywhere. And yet we see that God is relentlessly committed to broken, sinful people. And that he is committed to rescuing us from our own evil actions. He rescues the brothers from their own evil actions you know, through the use of the one they wanted to get rid of. And we also see that God is relentlessly committed to our good, to our transformation, that uh, throughout all this, some of these brothers go through a transformation process. And Joseph, too, he's going through a growth process. I don't, you know, 20 years ago, would he have been able to say these same words he says in Genesis 50, 20? Uh, I don't think so. There's a maturing process that happens in him because we see him earlier just saying, like, I'm in this terrible situation. Get me out of it. Brian preached on that when he's in prison. He's like, I shouldn't be here. Get me out of here. And then when he names his kids, he names them, I want to forget my afflicted hardship from my father's household and look God's made me fruitful in my land of affliction so he's like things are hard things are afflicted I want to get out of this oh God's finally relieved me and maybe he's feeling the happiness part a little bit based on his circumstances but we can find joy in knowing God is relentlessly committed to broken sinful people like us and in fact when we turn to Jesus that's no longer our primary identity God doesn't look and see, well, look at all these broken, sinful people I have to be committed to. He looks and says, these are my sons and daughters. We're no longer identified as we are sinners. You're like, I'm just going to be a sinner the rest of my life. No, I'm going to be, if you trust in Jesus, I'm a son or a daughter of the Father the rest of my life. And there may be, there's times when we are sinning or going the wrong way, uh, but that's not our primary identity. And then there's forgiveness, and God is relentlessly committed to us. And God is relentlessly committed to our good, and our transformation, that can bring us joy as well, that no matter what we're facing, we know God has not left us, that he is relentlessly committed to making us more and more like Jesus, freeing us from sin, um, giving us more of the love and joy and peace that he wants us to have. In Genesis 50, 20, 
this verse where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This, it's a summary of the whole story of Joseph, that every single act, any act that was meant for evil, God meant it for good. It's also a summary of the whole story of Abraham's family. You think about the whole thing. Every, whenever they have these missteps, Jacob and Abraham, and they do things they shouldn't do, whatever they tend for evil, God works it all out for good. It's a summary of the whole book of Genesis, that Genesis 3 onwards, there's all these evil human actions, and then it goes from the end of Genesis, just extends onward in human history all the way to us, that all of our actions that are intended for evil by us or for bad or for selfishness or for um, lifting ourselves up, God then in the end uh, makes it in, uh, in his plan for good. It's a summary of the whole history of Israel and the Old Testament. It's a summary of the life of Jesus, that all the actions that were done against Jesus, now that were intended for evil to get rid of him, to get him out of the way, now are then used for good. It's a summary of our lives as well. And when we think about our lives, um, things, when God says, uh, for those who love him, all things are worked out together for good. All things, everything, you know, the bad, good, the ugly, all things are worked out for our good. And the sum of our lives that uh, sometimes even, uh, you know, our bad actions, our sinful actions, selfish actions, those can be worked out for good. Um, not necessarily like, oh, look, I did this horrible thing and yeah, I still blessed this person. It's like, no, it probably will be used in spite of us, but then also how do our, the consequences of our bad actions teach us? And then things done to us or things we've seen done, it's all worked out for good by God. In the last verses, we see the death of Joseph. In Hebrews 11, when we read in the Hall of Faith, when it talks about Joseph, it says that this, when he says, God's going to visit you, and he's going to bring you up from this place, and take my bones with you, like gives these instructions to his brothers. Gen- or Hebrews 11.22 tells us that this was Joseph, by faith, saying, we're going to be taken out of here, and so take my bones up from here. Don't leave them here. We're commanded by God to rejoice. And it may seem odd at first to be commanded to have a specific emotion. How can God tell us to feel a certain way? You know, like telling your kid or somebody crying at work or, you know, something like, don't be sad, be glad. You know, <laughs> you know like just, you know, it doesn't really work out like that. You know, stop it. You know, just be happy. Um, how can God tell us to feel a certain way? Well, it tells us two things about joy that we can be commanded to rejoice. First, what we said earlier, joy is a choice. If we can be commanded to do it, that means we can choose for it to be a reality. First, joy is a choice. Yes, there's an emotional experience of joy. But joy is also something we can choose. Second, it tells us we have a reason to be joyful. So, how can God tell us, command us to rejoice? First, tells us joy is a choice. Second, tells us we have a reason to be joyful. It's not just put on a happy face and fake it. Rejoice. You know, I don't care if you don't have anything to rejoice about. Just rejoice. Um, but the fact that God tells us to rejoice tells us there's a reason to be rejoicing. The reason God can command us to do that is because there's something to rejoice about. We have a reason to be joyful. And what is that reason? And when there's I mean, plenty of reasons. that we, The two that we talked about the fact that God's relentlessly committed to broken sinful people and that we stand before him as people who should be getting repaid for the wrong we've done but instead are receiving the opposite salvation and forgiveness and comfort and provision um, that's a reason to be joyful 
And then secondly, that God's relentlessly committed to our good, to our transformation. And I want to hone in on that. There's three powerful pastors in the New Testament that help us in this. And uh, we're not going to turn there. If you want to write them down, here they are. It's Romans 5.8, Romans 8.28, Romans 5.8, Romans 8.28, James 1.3-4, Romans 5.8, Romans 8.28. James 1, 3 to 4. <clears throat> and each of these passages uses the word know in them. K-N-O-W. And we may not know the exact reason for what's happening to us. Why is this bad thing? Why is this hurtful thing? Why is this difficult thing? And why is this pain? Why is this suffering happening in my life? We may not know the exact reason for what's happening to us. But from the wisdom of the biblical writers... And we're told that God doesn't waste it. We're told to rejoice in suffering. Why? Romans 5.8 says, because we know. We know. And I imagine as Paul's writing this and as James writing his letter, he knows these stories like Joseph. Like, man, I've read Genesis 37 to 50, and so I know that God works all things out together for my good. Romans 5.8 says, we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. James 1.3-4, Because we can rejoice in suffering, because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And if we let steadfastness Fastness have its full effect, will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason that we can be told to rejoice, even when life isn't going as we want, plan, or expect, and it may be the worst day or the worst week of our lives, and God doesn't just say, like, stop it, put on a happy face, but we can rejoice because we know that God is going to use bad for good. He's relentlessly committed to our transformation. And God, in all these things, he's parenting us, he's growing us, he's developing us, he's training us, um, he's freeing us from our sin, he's freeing us from our hope um, and what sin offers and what um, this broken world offers and he's getting our hope to be put in something better and brighter and bigger than what this world has to offer. So how do we choose joy? How do we choose joy? The key to choosing joy is not putting ourselves in the place of God key to choosing joy is not putting ourselves in the place of God. This is what Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 19. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. key to choosing joy is not putting ourselves in the place of God. And so three, three, three choices to make. We choose to not stand as judge over other people. We choose to not stand as judge over other people. We choose to not stand as judge over other people, holding resentment and bitterness and anger in our hearts and, and waiting for or demanding repayment for what has been done to us, that we make ourselves the judge of everyone's lives. Um, we stand as judge over them, like they're doing this wrong, they're doing that wrong, they've wronged me in this way, and all these things have happened to me in my past, uh, and so now I'm going to stand as judge over all those people and I'm going to wait for repayment. But we're told to overcome evil 
with good. Look what Joseph does. He overcomes evil with good. He returns good in exchange for the evil that was done to him. And we're told to love our enemies because that's the perfect love of God, that we're his enemies and yet he loved us. And that God, even people who don't turn to Jesus, and God said, I mean, Noah, he promised, I'm going to let all these evil people whose the intentions are hard are only evil continually always, I'm going to let you live here uh, <coughs> and I'm not going to flood this place again. And then we're told, Jesus says, God sends rain on both the good and the wicked. And so God is loving even his enemies all the time, and especially those who turn to Jesus. And we can evaluate people's lives without standing as judge. Joseph <coughs> all his brothers did evil. And when Jesus says, do not judge, he's still evaluating people's lives, but I mean, Jesus has the right to stand as judge because he's going to come as judge. But um, we're told not to judge, and that, you know, we don't, we can, but we can help each other, and we can say, like, hey, Notice this thing in your life, and we can evaluate and point one another to Jesus and draw each other out of sin. We don't stand as judge for another person's life, taking responsibility um, for it and saying, like, you need to fix all this up and repay for this, what you've done, and do it right. So we choose to not stand as judge over people. Second, we choose to not stand <coughs> as judge over God. Choose to not stand as judge over God. We don't put ourselves in God's place. We think, we can tend to think that we might run the world better than God. You meant evil for me, and so does God. Like, the, all these things have happened to me. They happened this week, or they happened in my past, or with my family. And, like, all this evil, ha- you guys, all these people intended evil for me, and God intended the evil for me, too. And so we stand as judge over God, thinking, like, man, if I would have planned out my life, it would have been much better than this. And we let what we believe about God fluctuate based on our circumstances. You know, it's kind of like the happiness thing. It's like maybe we believe God's good when life is going as we want and plan and expect. Or we believe God is faithful or God is with us or God is near or God loves us or cares about us. Like if things are going in the way I want them to go and I plan them to go and expect them to go and, you know, it's all comfortable and it's like I'm on a cruise ship and everything is, you know, prepared for me and given to me and I have not a worry in the world... Oh, that's when God, you know, would love me and care for me. And that's when I would be convinced of it. But if it's not going that way, we let, we let what we believe about Him fluctuate based on our circumstances. And faith is trusting in the who when you don't know the why. <coughs> faith is trusting in the who when you don't know the why. And we have kind of this big ultimate why. We know that God works all things together for our good. That's like this big why we know that God is good and so he's going to take any bad that happens in our lives and he's working out for good um, as part of his parenting of us. Um, but we don't always know, like, God, I don't know what you're doing in this. What are you trying to teach me? And we can kind of feel like, okay, once I learn my lesson, I'm in my time out right now. Once I learn my lesson, then I get brought out of my time out and life will be good again. But it's like, that's not how, how it works. I don't think God uses timeouts. Um, that's like in in the midst of something, even it's like, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know what you're bringing about through this. I don't know if this, this is going to impact somebody's life, your, how you're forming my character, but I'm going to trust you because I know that you're good. Uh, I know you're in control of this. Lastly, we choose to not put others in the place of God. We choose not to stand as judge over others. We choose not to stand as judge over God. We also choose to not put others in the place of God. And like the brothers, we can live in fear of others. And you may be scared of something you've done. Uh, you might be scared of doing something wrong. 
and that can allow other people to control your life. Of like, you just have this overwhelming fear of like this person I've wronged, and now I'm scared of them, or I'm scared of doing something wrong, and maybe these people who see it are going to be mad at me or reject me. And we can let those people be the ultimate ones who define our lives. Or you might be the person who's been wrong. Um, and that can control you and allow people to be in the place of God where they're defining your life. That you have been wronged and now that wrong is defining how you live out your days. So as we uh, make this personal, I want you to fill in the blank here. We have a big idea. God uses bad for good. I want you to fill in the blank. God uses blank for good. And thinking about your life, what hasn't been or what isn't as you've wanted, as you've planned, or as expected, you've expected? And there's a spectrum of difficulties um, or suffering in our lives. There's sometimes things not going as we want that maybe it makes something hard or difficult or challenging. But it's not suffering. It's just, man, this isn't, why, this isn't easy for me. Um, and that's kind of like one low end of the spectrum of things being you know, bad. I won't necessarily call it bad, but one end of things being difficult. Um, they might, those things might annoy us or test our patience or make our day uh, less easy and comfortable, but they're not suffering. And on the other end of that spectrum is evil done to us, of so suffering, you know, whether it's relational or physical um, or affliction or hardship. And, and then there's also in that spectrum negative consequences that come out of our sinful things we've done. Like my life might be hard because of bad choices I've made. So there's a spectrum of God using bad, or God using difficulty, God using hardship, challenges, um, things we didn't want, plan, or expect, but he uses it for good, and there's a whole uh, spectrum there. And often we know, we're told in those three passages we read earlier, that God is using it, uh, maybe isn't putting us in a situation like Joseph, like, oh, okay, there's this bad thing that happened to me, and one day, you know, it's going to come around, I'm going to be put in this situation to, like, do this amazing good for all these people. Um, but what those three New Testament passages tell us is that there's a character formation happening. Um, and when things don't go our way, uh, it creates a situation where we realize, I need something outside of myself. It drives me to God. You know, when we lack uh, patience or kindness with kids, or when we lack patience or kindness with parents, or when we lack patience or kindness or gentleness with everybody, we have this moment where it's like, okay, I just realized that there's a deficit in me that I have a need that for something, somebody to fulfill something in me outside of myself, that now it drives us to God, okay, I'm, this isn't going as I wanted, planned, or expected. Now I need patience. Now I need gentleness. Now I need joy. I need love. I need faithfulness. I need some self-control um, with what's going on in this situation because I just want to, like, explode and run away and, you know, crawl in bed or something and where it's warm and nice and safe. And it's like, okay, in this moment I'm realizing... I have to go to God. And that's how character is formed in us and the fruit of the Spirit. And these situations create a need to trust God, to look to God, um, and to see, uh, look to Him for what we do not have. And so, take a moment. I'm just going to be 30 seconds. How would you fill in that blank? Something that isn't what you've wanted, planned, or expected. God uses <coughs> blank for good. Take 30 seconds to just consider that. <coughs>
your homework <clears throat> if you choose to accept it. We just watched Mission Impossible last night. That was really weird. You know, your mission is if you choose to accept it. This message will sell just, okay. Sorry, that came out just uh, subconscious. Uh, your homework is to consider the good part of that. So you fill in the blank. God uses this, and you're trusting he's going to use whatever it is, uh, something at work, something at home, something you know from your past. Uh, you can go through every single thing that you have in your mind of like, this person wronged me, this person hurt me, this wasn't how I wanted it to be. And right now, you know, this didn't go well today. And, you know, and whatever it is, even if you're anticipating something not going well, okay, God uses blank for good. And think about your past or think about these situations. What is the good that God is doing in your life or has done in your life because of that, that thing? And that's how we can choose joy, that we aren't hung up on uh, chasing after the hoping we can orchestrate our whole life. Uh, to make us happy, that it's all just kind of carefree and relaxed. Uh, but we can choose joy knowing whatever happened back there in my past, whatever's happening today and whatever's going to happen tomorrow, God, you are going to use it all for my good. And that's one of the big ways. There's a, um, there's a missionary who uh, talked about the book of Acts um, as an explosion of joy that it was this movement of joy um, across the world at the time, um, that it's these people that are just, they're being you know, beaten up for the name of Jesus, and then they're leaving rejoicing, like, rejoicing, we got beat up for Jesus, you know, like we are faithful servants and faithful witnesses, and this is what Jesus said would happen, but look, we're taking this message, and it's like this amazing thing that nothing was, the church is advancing and going all over the world, and yet it's not easy for them, and it's, uh, it's hard in a lot of cases, and they're facing difficulty, and there's this explosion of joy, and I hope that maybe as we go into Christmas, we can pray like, God, you make us a church of joy as we go through this Christmas season. I'm excited. We're actually going to do Acts next year. It's going to be our main series we do, so I hope that we can dig deeper into what was this, the early church all about, and how can we look at that and, and learn from it for our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, life has not been as we planned, expected, or wanted. That there's been things that have disappointed, things that have hurt, things that have hurt deeply, things that have uh, that we would have never chosen if we were planning our lives for ourselves. And yet, we trust that you are good, that you have worked out all of these things for our good. And that whatever we face tomorrow, you're working out for our good. That you're making us more and more like Jesus. That you're filling us up with the fruit you want to grow in our lives. And you're taking and pruning the bad fruit. And we trust you as the, our joyful, at peace with us, loving Father who is tending our lives. And forming us to be the kind of people you want us to be. So you fill us with joy. No matter what we faced or, or will face, that you will use it for our good. Your sons, let me pray. Amen.